one of our common greetings is, what do you know? And when someone asks us that, we usually say, oh, nothing. Which isn't too far from the truth. You know, not too many people. Lucy said, life is like a deck chair. Some people place it so they can see where they're going. Some people place it so they can see where they've been. And some people place it so they can see where they are in the present. And Charlie Brown said, I can't even get mine unfolded. Now, a lot of people relate to Charlie Brown. Can't even get their chair unfolded, much less figure out where I'm going, where I've been, where I am. You know, we live in a world filled with uncertainty, filled with doubt, filled with unanswered questions. A world where, where very few people seem to know anything for sure. In fact, the accepted terminology in most answers is a calculated projection, an educated guess, a reasonable assumption, a speculation, hypothesis, conjecture, deduction. We say, I think, I assume, I suppose, I surmise. We infer, we postulate, we estimate, we presume. And perhaps that's why the words we know jump off the pages of 1 John. The word know is used 34 times in this little book. And it's used seven times in verses 13 to 21 of chapter 5. Verse 13 says that we may know. Verse 15, we know. Again in verse 15, we know. Verse 18 begins, we know. Verse 19, we know. Verse 20, we know. And again, that we might know. You see, Christianity is not a guessing game. We are not caught up in speculation. We are not tentative. We're not unsure. If you are a Christian, you know something. Now, what is it? What do you know? Well, John closes out this letter in verses 13 to 21 by listing five things that we know. Five things that every Christian can be certain about. First thing, we know that we have eternal life. Verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. As Christians, we know that we have eternal life. That's a certainty. Now, if you haven't yet, you need to highlight some words in verse 13. Because it doesn't say you hope that you have eternal life, or you think you do, or you wonder, or you doubt, or you wish, or you assume. It says, you know. And it doesn't say, you know that you will get eternal life. It says, you know that you have 
eternal life. Eternal life is not something I have to wish for or wait for. I've got it right now. Listen to Jesus' words in John 5, 24. He said, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. You see, as a believer, I have already passed out of eternal death into eternal life. And yet it's common today to hear people say, you can't know. You hear people all the time say that you really have no way to be sure of your salvation. You won't find out until you die. In fact, I've heard people say that it's presumptuous to claim that you know that you have eternal life. How arrogant could you be? And people somehow have the idea that certainty and humility are mutually exclusive. But I want to tell you this morning that they coexist quite well. You see, my certainty is not based on confidence in me. My certainty is based on confidence in God. And if God's revealed purpose is not only that I should hear and believe and have eternal life, but that I should also know, then I would say that it's presumptuous for me to doubt God's Word. It's arrogant for me to say, God said it, but I'm going to edit it. You see, God wants you to know that you have eternal life. You say, well, how do I know? Well, look at verse 13 again. It says, these things I have written to you in order that you may know. Now, what things is he talking about? Well, he may be talking about the whole book because we've noted going through this book that John lays out three tests for us in this book. He lays out for us the doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. The doctrinal test, 1 John 5, 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. The moral test, 1 John 2, 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And then the social test, 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Three tests, believe, obey, and love. Now, John didn't give us those tests to discourage us. He gave those tests to encourage us. He didn't give us those tests so that we would flunk. He gave them so we would pass. He didn't give us those tests so that we would doubt. He gave us those tests so that we would know. But you know, he also may be talking about the immediate context here because if you go back to the verses right before this, in verses 6 to 12, he talks about the testimony of God. Verse 11 says, the witness is this. John has just laid out God's testimony, God's promise, God's guarantee. And so he says, on the basis of what God has said, we who believe can know. That's our assurance. You say, well, now that I know I've got eternal life, what is it? What is it that I know I've got? What is eternal life? Well, eternal life is more than quantity of life. 
Eternal life is more than just existing forever. One mother told this story about her young son, Jason. She says, when he was seven, I sent him off to school one day, and a little while later, there was a knock at the door, and I opened the door, and it was Jason. I said, Jason, what are you doing here? He said, I've quit school. I said, why have you quit school? He said, well, it was too long, it was too hard, and it was too boring. And I said, Jason, you have just described life. Get back on the bus. Now, if that's life, too long, too hard, too boring, and eternal life is only this life multiplied, then that wouldn't be too exciting. You see, it's more than just existing forever. People will exist forever in hell. Eternal life is quality life. It's God's life. It's the life God lives. Now, do you think that God enjoys life? Do you think that God experiences what real living is? You think God is satisfied with life? I do. And he has given his life to you and me. Now, don't misunderstand that. It doesn't just mean he zaps you with some cosmic energy and sends you on your way. See, when we slide down in this passage, chapter 5 and verse 20 tells us that Jesus Christ is eternal life. That's why Jesus could say, I am the resurrection and the life. That's why Jesus could say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, eternal life is a person. So I have eternal life when I am inseparably linked to Jesus Christ. That's why John just told us in 1 John 5, 12, he who has the Son has the life. Eternal life is being inseparably linked to Jesus Christ so that he lives through me and I live through him. So that I can say, with Paul in Galatians 2.20, Christ lives in me. See, that's why we read verses like this in the New Testament. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Now, a lot of us stop that verse right there. Did you realize there's more to that verse? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, that's what eternal life is all about. Ephesians 2.5 says, When we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3, 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. You see, eternal life is in Jesus. It's all about our relationship with him. That's why it doesn't surprise us when he says in John 17, 3, This is eternal life 
that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Eternal life is expressed in our relationship with him. See, eternal death is to be separated from God forever and the consequences that that will have on a person's character. Eternal life is to be intimately related to God forever and the consequences that will have on our character. So to have eternal life is to have his life and to share it with him. And there is no higher quality of life than that. I mean, think about it. What would you like to have most out of life? You say, well, I'd like to have peace. I'd like to be peaceful. I'd like no worries, no anxiety, no fear. Jesus said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. You say, well, I'd like to have love. I'd like to know that I'm loved, and I'd like to really love other people. John 15, 9, Jesus said, abide in my love. You say, well, I'd like to be happy. I would like a deep-seated joy that is evident regardless of the circumstances of my life. Well, Jesus said in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. You see, eternal life is quality life. It's the life God lives. It's God's life in me with his peace, his love, and his joy. Paul understood that. You know what Paul's prayer for himself and for you was? Here was his prayer for himself. Philippians 1.20 That Christ shall even now as always be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. What was his prayer for himself? That his life would be lived out through me. That his life would be magnified in me. That's eternal life. That I would experience eternal life to its fullest right now. You know what his prayer was for you? We read it in Ephesians 3.19, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. What's that? That you might experience the life of God to its fullest in you. That you might experience eternal life, God's life, lived out to its fullest in you. That's eternal life. And John says, we know that we have it right now. You say, well, if I've got eternal life, if I've got God's life inside of me, then why isn't it more evident? Well, let me suggest to you two limiting factors to the life of God in you. The first limiting factor is that it's limited by my sinful flesh. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels. I have got the treasure of eternal life in this temporal flesh carton which is oriented towards sin. And the lusts of my flesh squelch the expression of the life of God in me. 
So I've got God's life in me, but I'm stuck inside of this temporal fallen flesh. So what's the solution? Well, the solution is that I need to die to self. Romans 6.11 says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. See, that's two sides of the same coin. Dead to self, alive to God. 2 Corinthians 4.10 says, We are always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. You see, I will only experience God's life to the degree that I die to my own life. And then there's a second limiting factor, and that is it's limited by how much I know. You see, if eternal life is knowing God and knowing Christ, then when I'm not growing in that relationship, I'm not experiencing the fullness of life. And what's the solution to that? Well, the solution is to spend more time with God. Spend more time in His Word. Spend more time in prayer. Spend more time in fellowship. And the beauty is that the more that I get to know Him, the more that I become like him. Until ultimately, John told us in 1 John 3, 2, if he should appear, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. At that moment when he returns, I'm going to drop this flesh and I'm going to become like him. And I'm going to see him as he is. I'm going to know him as I've never known him before. At that point, all the limitations will be gone. This fallen flesh carton will be gone. My knowledge of him will be full. And that's an exciting day. But let me tell you something. Even in this sinful flesh, and even with my limited knowledge, I now have eternal life. I will never be any more or less I will never have any more or less of eternal life than I do right now. So as Christians, we know that we have eternal life. Second thing we know, we know that God answers prayer. Verses 14 to 17. Notice verse 14. And this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked from him. Now, these two verses wipe out two popular misconceptions about prayer. For some Christians, prayer is kind of a venture. It's kind of an experiment. It's kind of a chance you might as well take. You know, the odds aren't with me, but I'll try it anyway because I can't figure out what else to do. My odds are about as good of winning the Missouri lottery as having God answer my prayers. But what does John say here? He says in verse 14, and this is the confidence. Does that describe your prayer life? This is the confidence that we have before God. And then verse 15 says, 
We know that he hears us, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we sure hope we get it. No. It says we know that, we've had, that we have what we've asked for. That's pretty confident. You see, prayer is not an experiment. Prayer is not a shot in the dark. It is a certain thing. It is a sure thing. We know God hears, and we know God answers. And then there's a second misconception that this wipes out, and that is for many Christians, prayer is simply a means of trying to get God to do my will. And I think some Christians today have the idea that God is kind of a genie in heaven and we rub the Aladdin's lamp and we try to get him to do our wishes. You know, he's kind of a heavenly bellboy and, and uh, we press the button of prayer and he rushes to meet our needs. And I wince a lot of times when I hear Christians pray. I wince when I hear preachers pray sometimes and they're commanding and demanding God, making it very obvious that God is the junior partner in this business relationship. Well, I want you to notice something very important in these two verses, and that's the phrase in verse 14 that says, if we ask anything according to his will. You see, prayer is not a means of getting God to do our will. If that was the way prayer was set up, we'd have all kinds of problems. Because you'd be asking for something, and I'd be asking for something, and they would be contradictory. Reminds me of the three fellows who were lost on an island together. There was a rancher and a cab driver from New York and this happy-go-lucky kind of guy who was a hitchhiker. And uh, they were all together on the island, and they found this uh, Aladdin's lamp, and they rubbed it, and here came the genie. And the genie said, each of you can have a wish. So the rancher said, well, I, went, I miss my ranch. You know, I miss my cattle. I'd like to go back to Texas. Poof, he was gone. cab driver said, I never thought I'd say this, but I miss New York City. I miss the smog. I miss the smell. I miss the traffic. I'd like to go back there. Poof, he was gone. Happy-go-lucky fellow says, you know, it's kind of lonely around here. I'd like those two guys back. Poof, poof. <laughs> See, prayer is not a way of getting God to do my will. Prayer is surrendering my will to God. Prayer is determining what God's will is and then lining up with His will. Prayer is not reducing God to my level. Prayer is lifting me up to God's level. So John says, hey, prayer is not a shot in the dark. It's confident, expectant. You can be sure. You can be certain. In fact, you can know that you have what you ask for. In fact, you can know that you have whatever you ask for as long as it is according to his will. It doesn't do you any good to open the Sears catalog and order something that's not in the catalog. God has a catalog, his will. It's what's best for you. It's what you need. And when we open his catalog, we ask for what he wants to give us according to his will. So John says, whatever we ask, according to his will, he'll give us. You say, well, that's, that's the problem, his will. You know, when I was a teenager, Satan had me believing that God's will was the worst 
thing imaginable. Would you rather have your toenails pulled out with pliers or do God's will? Mm. See, that's a lie. Paul tells us in Romans 12, too, that, that God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. It's good. It's positive. It's acceptable. It fits you perfectly, and you'll like it. See, it's acceptable. It's good. It's perfect. It's just what you want. God's will includes all that we need, all that we really want, and all that is ultimately best. And John says, if we pray according to his will, we have whatever we ask for. Now, I think some people overreact to a verse like this. They see a verse like this, and they see it's according to God's will, and they say, well, if it's according to God's will, he's going to do it anyway, so I don't even need to pray. In fact, a lot of people look at a verse like this, and they pray a list the options prayer. You ever hear that kind of prayer? God, you may want to do this, and you may want to do that, and you may want to do the other thing. Your will be done. That's a, that's a list the options prayer. You say, well, isn't that the kind of prayer Jesus prayed in the garden? What did Jesus say in the garden? Jesus said, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will but thine be done. Now, let me ask you a question. Was Jesus confused about what God's will was? No. Was Jesus saying, you might want me to go to the cross, and you might not want me to go to the cross? No. Jesus knew exactly what God wanted him to do. He wasn't praying a list the options prayer. You see, in his humanity, he knew the call was to go to the cross. In his humanity, he was flinching at the cross. And his prayer was really, Father, help me to surrender my human will to your will. That was the prayer. You see, when we know what God's will is, sometimes we have to deal with our humanity to get our own will in line with his. The key to prayer is discerning what God's will is and then lining up with God's will. The key to prayer is asking specifically for what I discern God's will to be. You see, if you don't ask specific prayers, then this, these two verses don't make a whole lot of sense. Because three times in these two verses it says, we ask. And the whole point of verse 15 is that we will get what we ask for. Now, if you come to God with a list of the options prayer, I don't know how you ever know that your prayer got answered. Or if you come to God and you ask for nothing, how do you know when you got nothing? You see, we discern what God's will is, and then we ask specifically for that, and John says, we know that we have whatever we ask for. You say, well, that's all well and good, but how do I know what God's will is? Well, you know the two things that limited eternal life also limit your prayer life? 
If you're going to be effective in your prayer life, you have to die to self. Because that gets my will out of the way. And if you're going to be effective in prayer, you have to know him. You have to spend time with him. You have to spend time in his word so that you know what God's will is, so that your will gets lined up with his. Jesus put it another way in, in John 15, 7. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. If you're at home in Christ and his words are at home in you, you can ask whatever you want and it'll be done. Why? Because when you're at home in Christ and his words are at home in, your, in you, then your will is lined up with his will. In John 14, 14, Jesus said, If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, does that mean that every time I attach that phrase to my prayer in Jesus' name, that he's going to do it? No. See, God, God is not a cosmic vending machine where you come up and say, God, make me a billionaire in Jesus' name. And there it is. One of the things that that phrase, in Jesus' name, means is that I am lining up with his purposes, his desires, his priorities, his will for my life. And that is the key to prayer. Now, having said that, let me also say that there are times when I come to God in prayer and I cannot discern what his will is. I don't have a clue what God is doing. And that's where a verse like Romans 8:26 comes in. It says the spirit also helps our weakness for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So John tells us we know that God answers prayer when we ask according to his will. And then he gives us an example of that in verses 16 and 17. He says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him, give him, God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not leading to death. John says, if your brother commits a sin not leading to death, pray for him and God will give him life. But if he commits a sin leading to death, don't bother praying for him because he's not going to get life. Now this is one of those places in Scripture where the interpretation of this passage is very difficult. The application is real obvious. So let me deal with the interpretation first. There's two... Uh, prominent interpretations by Bible teachers of this passage. One is that he's talking here about a Christian who sins so that God takes his physical life. Moses committed a sin unto death. First time Moses was told to strike the rock. The second time he was told to speak to the rock. But out of anger he struck the rock the second time. And what did God say? You're not going to see the promised land. Now if you read Deuteronomy chapter 3... Moses went before God in prayer and pled with God, please let me go into the land. And God said, no. We come to the New Testament, we find people like Ananias and Sapphira. God struck them dead. 
because of sin. We read about people in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 30, because they were abusing the Lord's Supper, it says some were weak and some were sick and a number sleep. God took them home. Sin unto death. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that he's talking here about an apostate. He's talking about spiritual death. He's talking here about a professing believer who's not really a believer who commits a sin unto spiritual death. He crosses a line spiritually where God just says there's finality to that and I'm drawing the line. I tend to think that the interpretation is the second one. That he's talking here about an apostate. He's talking about spiritual death because that's the context here in 1 John. He's talking here about eternal life and eternal death. Now he's talking about life and death. I think he's talking about the same thing. And I think he gives us an illustration of who this person is in 1 John. If you go back to chapter 2 and verse 18, he says, Children, it's the last hour, and just as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. There were some in the church there who left, and they left because they denied that Jesus is the Son of God, and they actually went out and became false teachers, antichrists, who proclaimed the lies of Satan. I think that's the person John has in mind here. When you see somebody who understands the gospel and they turn their back on the gospel and they go to the extreme of being a false teacher, he's saying don't bother praying for that person because they have crossed the line. They are comparable to the person we read about in, in Hebrews chapter 6 who understands the gospel fully and walks away. And there he says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. They have crossed the line where they can't be reached. You say, but he calls him a brother here. Well, John's used that term before. In 1 John 2.9, he said, the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. John's all about people who profess to be a brother who are not. And I think that's who he's talking about here. Now, the interpretation is a little difficult. The application is real obvious. He's just said, if you pray according to God's will, you'll get what you ask for. Now he gives us an illustration. If your brother sins, pray for him. But if you have a brother or a professing brother who turns around and becomes a false teacher, he says, don't bother praying for him because God's will is already set as to what's going to happen to that individual. So all your prayer is not going to change. God's will. So, as Christians, we know that God answers prayer. Third thing, and we're, oh man, what happened? Real quick, we're going to fly through this. Hold on to your pages. We know that sin and Satan can't control us. Verse 18. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now he says, we know that no one who is born of God sins. Now he's not saying that Christians never sin. He already told us back in 
1 John 1, 8, that if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. What he's saying here is equivalent to what he said in 1 John 3, 9, no one who is born of God practices sin. It's no longer the, condition, the continuous habitual pattern of my life. You see, the new birth results in new behavior, and sin no longer controls me. And then at the end of the verse, he says, and the evil one does not touch him. That word touch means to fasten onto, to lay hold of. You see, Satan may poke around at me, but he can't lay hold of me. People often ask me whether a Christian can be demon-possessed. Well, possession speaks of ownership. And this verse says, Satan cannot lay hold of me. Why not? Look at that phrase in the middle of verse 18. But he who was born of God keeps him. Who's that? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ not only saves me, he keeps me from sin and from Satan. And I think Peter's experience is a good example of this. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 31, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That tells me that whenever Satan attacks me, he first has to get permission from God. And God is not going to give him permission to attack you unless he also gives you the power to overcome and unless he also has a purpose in that that is going to bring you out more fruitful and more effective for his ministry. And so we know as Christians that sin and Satan can't control us. Fourth thing, we know that we belong to God, verse 19. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now I hear people fretting all the time about, you know, the condition of this world. What's this world coming to? Well, what do you expect? What does this verse say? It says the whole world literally lies in the lap of the evil one, lies in the arms of the evil one. You see that song, the whole world, we got, he got, how's it go? He's got the whole world in his hands. That ain't right. See, this verse says Satan has the whole world in his hands. And he's rocking the world and he's singing a lullaby, rockabye baby. He's nurturing the world and the world will ultimately grow up to look just like daddy. But not you and me. Because John says, we know that we are of God. We're born of God. We lie in the lap of of God. He's the one who's nurturing us. And we will grow up to look like our daddy. And so in the midst of a troubled world, we know that we belong to God. And then fifthly, we know that Jesus Christ is the true God. Real quick, verse 20. It's really kind of a summary of all that he said. He says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know him who is true. Who's that? That's the Father. And we are in him who is true. Who's that? He tells us. In his son, Jesus Christ. And then who is Jesus? Notice this phrase. Speaking of Jesus, he says, this is the true God and eternal life. 
Now, I don't know of a verse that's more clear about the deity of Jesus Christ than this one. He says, this one, Jesus Christ, is the true God and eternal life. We know as Christians that Jesus Christ is the true God. Listen, in a world of uncertainty and insecurity, it's revolutionary to be a person who knows. Next time somebody comes up and says, what do you know? You can say, I know I have eternal life. I know God answers my prayer. I know that sin and Satan can't control me. I know that I belong to God. And I know that Jesus Christ is the true God. You know what's interesting to me? Notice how John ends this book. You know, I mean, you you think he's going to end with some polished kind of thing. He says in verse 21, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. What's an idol? It's anything that takes the place that God deserves. Anytime God becomes second to anything in your life, you're an idolater. And we have to be careful about idols because idols aren't always evil things. They can be good things that are in the wrong place. You know, in Numbers 21, when God sent fiery serpents among the children of Israel, he told Moses to put up a bronze serpent on a pole, and whenever they looked to the serpent on the pole, they were healed. Remember that story? Later, in 2 Kings 18.4, we find that Israel was worshiping and burning incense to that bronze serpent. They had taken that thing that God had given them that was good and they had turned it into an idol. An idol is anybody or anything in your life that is in the wrong place, in the place that God belongs. It can be your child, your mate, your work, your house, your lawn, your car, your antiques. It can be your education, your vacation. You know how you can tell what it is? Jesus said this, where your treasure is, There will your heart be also. And then he said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So whatever you spend most of your time thinking about and talking about is the priority in your life. Whatever you spend the most time thinking about and talking about is what's on your heart. And Jesus deserves and desires to be in that first place. I really like the way John finishes this letter because we said at the beginning that when when Jesus called John in Matthew chapter 4, he was mending nets. And that's really the ministry God gave him. Here we are 25 or so years after all the other apostles have died. And what's he doing? He's mending again. He's mending relationships between you and God, between you and your brothers and sisters. And so as he comes across here at the end, he comes across kind of like my mom always did. You know, when I'd head out the door, the last words I would hear... Don't forget your coat. You know, a little warning as you go out the door. And that's John. He says, guard yourselves from idols. Why? Because he's talking about relationships. And the one thing that can destroy your relationship quicker than anything else with the Lord is to get something in that place where it doesn't belong. And so some of us need a private, personal temple cleansing this morning. We need to just say, Lord, I've got some things in my life that are out of place. They started out as good things, and now they're priorities. And I want you to be number one, because that's what life is all about, is a relationship with Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word today.
We thank you for this passage, which is so exciting, telling us the things that we know for sure because you have promised. And Father, I pray that we might lay hold of these promises and walk confidently before you. For Jesus' glory, amen.